Our scripture lesson for this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, and if we have it back there, then I will uh, read it to you from there. Yeah, you can follow along. Uh, This is Paul's word to uh, the church in Rome, a church that he did not plant, but that he felt like needed to hear what he had to say anyway. And these are some of his words to them. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this, this is is where we're gonna focus our attention today to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, I know for the last several weeks we have been talking about the cross and about atonement theories, but before we get back to that conversation, we need to have a conversation about speed limits. Specifically, I'm curious if you could tell me, how fast am I allowed to drive on an interstate highway in Alabama. 70, 70, 70, 70. Okay, we have a, a consensus here that it is 70 miles an hour. I know there's some caveats for in the city and you know special zones or whatever, but 70, that seems to be the consensus. That's funny, because in the last month, I've driven about 800 miles up and down Interstate 10 for different things. And as I have done that, I had the distinct impression, both in Florida and in Alabama, that if I had been driving 70 miles an hour, I would have been run off the road. Have you noticed that? I've been on the road with hundreds of cars that have passed me or that I have passed or that have been driving right about the same size. Everyone seems to agree that the real speed limit is somewhere between 72 and 76 miles per hour. I didn't see anybody just blowing by at 85. I've seen that before, but I haven't in any of my recent trips. Everybody seems to agree that it's really more like 74 or 76, somewhere in that range, unless we see a state trooper in the median, in which case everyone agrees that the speed limit is 72. And in all the time that I've been driving up Interstate 10 in this last month, I've never seen anyone flying by at like 85 miles an hour. There's just this unspoken, un an unwritten consensus is not on any of the signs that the speed you are allowed to go is a little bit different than what's written on the sign. That you are allowed to go somewhere between 72 and 76 miles an hour. And that seems obvious to us if we've spent any time on the road. We know that. We get on the road and we know we can go 74. We can probably go 76, unless we are 16 and have just gotten our license, in which case you need to drive 70. Now we know that we are allowed to go somewhere in that 74 to 76 miles an hour, and the reason we know that is because we know what the sign says 
matters a lot less than what the state troopers will enforce. Right? We know that a law isn't really a law if there is no penalty for breaking it. And that, in a nutshell, is the penal substitutionary atonement theory of the cross. It's this understanding that Paul sums up when he says to the Roman in today's reading that God presented Christ as a sacrifice in order to demonstrate God's righteousness, to show what God's righteousness is, to show that God is just. For what it's worth, in the New Testament, whenever you come across the word righteousness and the word justice, they are the same word. For us, righteousness, holiness, moral goodness is somehow a little bit different from justice, fairness, kind of social and shared goodness. But for the Hebrew people and for the early Christians to whom Paul was writing, they were one word that implied all that. You cannot be righteous if you are unjust. You cannot be just if you are unrighteous. And so in Paul's account of the cross today, he says that Jesus died to demonstrate God's justice. And the shortest summary I can manage for this theory of the cross we're talking about today that we call the penal substitution atonement theory is this. Because God is just, God has to answer the wrongs of the world and must show what is right by punishing what is wrong. But rather than pouring out that punishment on us, God sent Jesus Christ so that God the Son would bear the brunt of it in our place. And before we go too deep on what all that means, it's important that we take just a moment to protect ourselves. If I was gonna try and climb Mount Everest, I wouldn't just run out there in what I'm wearing now or what I wear on the weekends. I would make sure I had really good, uh, really good snow boots with the crampons on them that would grip the ice really tightly. I'd make sure I had good, solid walking sticks. I'd make sure I had a great insulated coat because if I wanted to see the view from the top of that mountain, I'd need to be prepared on the way up. And in the same way, there are too many people who have tried to stand on the gospel of the cross using the penal substitution model as the foundation of their entire gospel. But they've approached it with so little care and thought that they've exposed themselves and the church to some dangerous accusations that we want to avoid today. The first accusation is that this penal substitutionary model is one that, is, that makes violence intrinsic to God's character. If we're not careful, we could accidentally find ourselves describing a God in a way that justifies all kinds of holy violence. In Christian history, like all human histories, we are not the only ones guilty of this, but we aren't innocent either. Christian history is littered with our attempts to baptize our violence, to make it holy. The inquisitors of Europe and the lynch mobs of the South both claimed to be righteous and claimed that they were enacting justice, that they were just doing what justice demanded and that's what justified their violence. But now the memory of both of those hangs over us all. And if we are not careful, if we too quickly demand violence as the response to sin, then we, we turn God into Argus Filch, the caretaker from the Harry Potter books, who in one of the movies just finds himself so frustrated, he yells, I want to see some punishment. If 
we're not careful, that's who we turn God into. The big boss who just wants to see some punishment. The second accusation that is often levied against this understanding of the cross is that God is uh, too easily, this understanding is too easily manipulated by people who would make it a tool of abuse. Because in the ransom theory and the Christus Victor theory and the satisfaction theory and all these other understandings of the cross that we've talked about, it is God who takes the brunt of it. It is God who pays the price. It is God who wins. It is God who makes the sacrifice. God pays the debt, fights on the front line of the battle. God offers perfect holiness on our behalf. It's always God who makes the sacrifice. But in the hands of some preachers and would-be Christian leaders who adore their own authority and are seeking to prop it up, the penal substitution theory has often been used to abuse and manipulate so that suddenly it's not God who's making the sacrifice, but it's God who demands the sacrifice. And that becomes a way to demand all kinds of sacrifices from others. And that's why this account of the cross, which has strong scriptural foundation and speaks to our deep longing for justice, has to be approached cautiously, especially when we are trying to share good news with those folks who have been abused by those who claimed authority over them. Domestic abusers, church abusers, professional abusers. They know all too well how to persuade their victims that their suffering is deserved and it's what they owe to the leader. So we don't ever want to make that mistake. I can't go any farther without trying to give you some supports and some protection to resist the manipulation and the misappropriation that would twist something as real and as good and as true as justice into something that is blasphemous. Never forget that it was God on the cross. It was God making the sacrifice. God never demanded that you suffer for God's pleasure or God's satisfaction. God has always placed himself alongside those who suffer. God has always endured the suffering. And God has always sought to set people free from it. And that is why God has always been a witness against exactly the kind of perversion of justice. And that's why we have to talk about justice when we talk about the cross. We have to talk about justice when we talk about the cross. No matter how false teachers might twist and manipulate it, we need to redeem and proclaim our witness that the cross does demonstrate God's justice and that justice matters. Two weeks ago, we said that the cross is the ultimate testimony to Christ's faithfulness, that it was like the master stroke on a masterpiece painting. It was the moment when Christ perfected his faithfulness and showed us what we were made for. It was the moment when Christ showed us what is truly good. And today, the cross reminds us that we can't testify to what is truly good unless we are equally willing to demonstrate equally clearly what is wrong and what ought not be. And just like it doesn't matter what's written on the sign if the speed limit is never enforced. It doesn't matter how much we may say, oh, that's a shame, that's so bad, if we never see God take action in response. I have seen enough abuse in the lives of God's people to make me extremely cautious when I talk about penal substitution. The idea that Christ took or paid the penalty that God demanded. But I've also seen enough abuse 
to know that God must give an answer to injustice. I need to know that those who have recklessly hurt their loved ones, their neighbors, those entrusted to their care, I need to know that those who inflict that kind of harm will one day be confronted by the truth of what they have done. I want to I want to see them make it right. <laughs> I want to see them make restitution. And there are sometimes when it can't be made right. In those moments, the very least I demand is that somehow they realize how wrong it was. I need to know that God will not simply say, oh, let's get past all that. But that God has an answer and that God will have the last word. I need a witness against injustice, a witness that doesn't just live in painted signs that we blow past with reckless abandon. But I need to know that God demonstrates justice by holding evil to account, pulling it off the road, and demanding restitution. And I expect there's been a moment like that for you in your own life. I bet there has been a moment where you wanted someone to be punished. You wanted someone to suffer the consequences. And I bet there's also been a moment when you have sounded like the thief who was on the cross beside Jesus and you even found yourself saying something like, I am receiving what I deserve. I bet there has been a moment when you didn't want what you had done to be forgotten. You wanted to make it right. You wanted to have some sort of public demonstration that says, I know this was wrong. You wanted to be held to account but then I think about how many lifetimes it would take for me to heal every hurt I've caused, every wrong I've ever done. And please don't misunderstand, I don't believe all sins are the same, that's not biblical. I'm grateful that I haven't done the very worst things I could have done. Neither have you. No matter what you've done, I guarantee there's somebody in the history of the world who's done worse. No matter, that's not really the point, is it? Because even if I'm not the worst, the total of the mistakes that I've made, the people I've let down, the glories that I've hindered because I just couldn't get out of the way, they all deserve to be answered with justice. They deserve to be answered by God. But if I had to sit for even an hour with the full weight of all my mistakes, I don't think I could bear it. And surely you've had another moment when you knew you couldn't take it either. Surely there's been a time when you knew you didn't have enough strength or enough time left to make all the things right. Surely you have felt what it is like to feel as though the weight of your own failings is more than you can bear. Surely you've had a moment when you've discovered what everyone else knows, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the dilemma within each of us. We want justice. We want God to answer unrighteousness. We want God to hold it to account. We say it, it's, we can't just let it go. There has to be an answer. But if God truly answered every wrong, if God truly spoke against all the wrongs of this world, who among us could stand? We want lies to be answered with truth. We want cruelty to be answered with a strong defense. We want the sorrow of those who suffered to be answered by the repentance and the tears of those who caused suffering. But we are scared of too much justice, too much righteousness, 
too much light, because if there was too much, then it would take away those corners where we would like to hide some things in the shadows. And so, God united himself to humanity in Jesus Christ. And so it is that Jesus went before us to face the justice of the Father. And so Jesus carried the full weight of our sin with him to the cross. And the Son invited the Father to pour out the light and the heat of their glory upon the sin of the cross, upon the sin of humanity. And at the cross, what we see is that God could never turn a blind eye to sin and to evil. At the cross, we see God answering sin once and for all. And as the glory of God met the frailty of our sin, it's as though our sin caught fire. It burned with flames so bright and so hot that we could see God's justice. And through it all, Christ stood in the furnace of that glory holding our sin between himself and the Father until it was all burned away. And he carried all the things that we cannot so that we could stand in the presence of God, unashamed and unafraid. And he has shown us the justice of God so that we don't have to fear it. What does that mean in real life? What does it mean that God must answer justice and that in Christ, God did. What does that mean for how we live? I'd like to suggest three ways that we can reclaim the penal substitution theory from those who would use it to justify their own power and even abuse. I wanna suggest three ways that we can say that God must answer injustice and that the law must be enforced if it is to be law, but that we can do it in a way that is redemptive rather than destructive. First and foremost, if we believe that the cross was how God called out injustice and unrighteousness, and if we believe that Jesus carried the full penalty of that accounting, then we can call out our own sin without fear. If we believe that Christ has already answered sin, has already taken, carried the penalty, then we don't have to be afraid of the penalty of admitting our own need for God. We can admit to ourselves and to God and to even each other the failings that we try to hide from. We can be honest with ourselves without fearing what we're going to find. We can confess. How much of the abuse that we see in the world, the cruelty that we see in the world, comes from the simple fear of being honest about what we have done, about what we have left undone? How many people have feared losing their position, their status, the respect of their neighbor? So they tried to hide it. But if we truly believe that Christ has carried the penalty, that in the end nothing can separate us from the love of God, we literally have nothing we can lose. We can be honest. We can confess without fear. We can make a sacrifice of an honest confession rather than demanding a sacrifice from someone else. Secondly, 
we can shine a light on injustice around us. God had to call out injustice. God had to say there is a consequence for the sin in the world, and the church should do the same. The church should shine a light on injustice. And we don't do this by being scolded, by saying, you shouldn't do that, we know better. Instead, we do it by relentlessly resolving that we will shine with God's presence. I remember a few years back, there's a law passed in our state that included, among other things, some provisions that made it illegal for Alabamians to knowingly transport undocumented immigrants. I thought the best response to that from any church came from a church I knew in Birmingham who said, fine, we know what the law says. We're not gonna stop our van ministry that brings our neighbors to church on Sunday morning, and we're not gonna ask for their papers at the door. That wasn't a scold. It wasn't condemnation, but it did highlight the injustice. It did say, these are the people you are asking us to leave behind. And sure enough, when the church made it real clear where the injustice was, that part of the law got changed. We are called to shine a light on injustice. I think of Dolphin Way's history with Joy for Johnny or the ministry of Larsh here in town as ministries that proclaim that real justice honors the glory and the image of God and the lives of people in our society that are too often neglected or even ended before they are born. A church that cannot insist on God's justice can never know the full glory of God in the faces of all our neighbors and those that God is still bringing into the world. We can shine a light on injustice. Finally, in addition to offering our confession and living by the truth, in addition to shining light on the injustice in the world around us, the penal substitution model reminds us that the execution of that justice belongs to God and not to us. Amen. At the end of the book of Romans, Paul will go on to say to the people there in Rome, do not take revenge, my dear friends. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We are the witnesses, not the judge or the jury. And that is very good news when we are faced with situations where justice seems impossible. Like, for example, what would it even mean to see justice in Ukraine right now? Some of us would like to demand that the perpetrators of these crimes suffer the full extent of the punishment for their actions. But we also know that as long as we demand unconditional surrender, we might make those violators all that much more desperate prolonging the fight even longer. And the truth is, in nearly every human conflict, whatever outcome there is, we, go, we, we work for the best that we can, but in the end, there is always gonna be some kind of negotiation, some kind of compromise, some kind of imperfect justice that disappoints every person, but saves hundreds of thousands of lives. We make do with imperfect compromises in this world, and the only way I can be okay with that is that I believe Vladimir Putin will one day face God's justice. I don't have to enact it. 
I need to shine a light on injustice. I need to do it by seeing the glory of all those who need it. I wonder where in your own life suffering has prolonged, devastation has gone even beyond what was intended because you insisted on having your justice and couldn't trust that God will have his one day. And when he does, when Vladimir Putin and all the rest of us have been pulled entirely off the road, been asked, how fast were you going? Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea where you were going? Do you have any idea what kind of left mess you've left in your wake? We'll only have two responses. If we stand on our own rightness, if we insist that it's all a big mis misunderstanding, if we insist on justifying our lives, then the truth will burn like hell. But if we will be humbled, and if we will listen to the testimonies of those we didn't always listen to, if we will feel their experience of those times, we didn't get it right. Sometimes from our best intentions and sometimes from lot lesser desires. If we will be humbled and accept the truth, and if we can say to God, let your glory and your justice and your righteousness be revealed, not in my power, but in my honesty, then we will find Jesus there right beside us, leading us, leading the way, going before us into the light of the glory until we are ready to stand in the full light of God's presence and discover that every wrong has been answered by the goodness of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.